Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the All's Well podcast. Today we're going to learn about Bonehenge Whale Center in Beaufort, North Carolina. But first, we've got to introduce the final member of our team, Rory. Welcome Rory. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi everyone, my name is Rory and I'm a Master of Environmental Management student at Duke University studying Ecosystem Science and Conservation. This fall, I am studying at the Duke Marine Lab where I'm immersing myself in the ecology of marine environments. I'm interested in coastal restoration, particularly as it relates to wildlife conservation and how local communities can get involved in restoration processes to make real changes in their environment they are closely intertwined with and rely upon to survive. Currently, I am volunteering at Bonehenge doing all sorts of cool stuff, which we will hear about today, and also am a ornithology collections assistant and volunteer at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, where I essentially stuff birds for display. I'm really excited to join the Oswald team and learn more about our coastal ecosystems. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Hi everyone, this is Catherine. So our guest this episode is Keith Rittmaster. He's the natural science curator at Bonehenge Whale Center in Beaufort, North Carolina. Keith also works with the North Carolina Marine Mammal Stranding Network and the Atlantic Large Whale Disentanglement Network. The mission of Bonehenge is to be a facility from which to base research, exhibit preparation and display, marine conservation, educational programming, outreach, publications, and stranded specimen collection, and maintenance that focuses on North Carolina cetaceans, whales, dolphins, and porpoises, past and present. Welcome, Keith. Hi, glad to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. So, as you know, we're all graduate students, and it's fascinating for us to know how people got where they are. Um, so we'd like to hear a little bit more about your background um, and what steps you took early in your career to prepare you for your current role. Well, to a New Jersey surfer, North Carolina is the promised land, and I just had to figure out a way to get to the Outer <laughs> Banks of North Carolina. Um, so I came to Cape Hatteras National Seashore, kind of straight from high school. Ended up getting a BA in economics at Denison University in Ohio. I was a fish out of water, but I learned that if I became an economics major, I could get out of Ohio in three years and still graduate. <laughs> so, um, and I, um, and I uh, got into a Duke graduate's program in the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. This is back in the eighties. Um, but I think uh, probably more important than my academics seems like. Um, you know, academics was helpful in, in making making me disciplined and complete things. But uh, my volunteer efforts uh, seemed to really influence my career trajectory. And uh, either finding somebody I admire, or somewhere I wanted to be, or some species I wanted to work with, and just throwing myself into it as a volunteer. I bartended at night a lot to be able to afford to volunteer. And I was volunteering, I mean, just as an example, uh, I was volunteering at SeaWorld in San Diego and I had this like $400 a night bartending gig on Mission Bay. And when SeaWorld offered me a job for $4 an hour, <laughs> I had quit my bartending <laughs> job. And, um, and that helped me get my foot in the door. And then I spent, um, you know, as an employee at SeaWorld for a little while, and then I volunteered on research cruises, and my wife and I worked 
together and she was paid, but I was volunteering. I shouldn't say, but I was volunteering and I was volunteering. And eventually after about five years of mostly volunteering, I finally got some people to pay me to do what I want to do. In my current position, it's not like I applied for a job. I, I sort of created it and just um, didn't hurt anybody, didn't blow anything up. Uh, I just uh, tried to do good work with integrity and involve the public. And what landed me in this position now is just some amazing volunteers who want to do nothing but support with kindness and talent and generosity. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, Absolutely. that's that's, yeah. that's really cool to hear. Um, <laughs> Did you always work with whales and sea critters? Or? Yeah, um, uh, the surfing and sailing introduced me to bottlenose dolphins around here. And my wife and I, we weren't married at the time, but we were surfing and sailing together. And uh, we just asked a few really simple questions like, what are those things with dorsal fins? Are they here year round? And the scientists didn't seem to be clear about what they are. And the fishermen didn't seem to be clear about what they are. And our reaction was, Jesus, this is like the biggest thing in the water and people don't know what they are. You know, they can't agree if they're here year round. Some people call them porpoises. Some people call them dolphins. And then we heard about photo ID, this method of taking pictures of dorsal fins and identifying individuals and learning about associations and birth rates and migratory endpoints and all this stuff that you can learn about them. And we set out one summer and drove to Florida, Texas, California to meet people who were using this method. Of course, we were broke, you know, and it was costing us money, you know, but um, we learned what we could. We met some Pretty cool people who are doing the work, and we came back in 1985 when we took our first pictures of local dolphins. You know what? Our very first dolphin that we ever photographed was a cutoff dorsal fin. We photographed her with a newborn baby here. Two months ago, I photographed her with a baby here. Oh, that wow. is a long life! Wow. And uh, we named her Cuddy, and my wife did her PhD dissertation through Duke uh, and about Cuddy and reproduction. Every time I'm on the water, she said, did you see Cuddy? It's like a broken record. And I said, no, no, I will let you know, I promise. And then I was able to say, yes, um, I can't ignore this fact. The baby she was with was entangled. Wow. Sorry to be the buzzkill. Mm. And um, and I haven't seen her since. And we've got a lot of eyes on the water, biologists and ferry captains. And just the idea of another Lionel out there, right here swimming around Beaufort, shreds me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. For our listeners, can you explain what entanglement is? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, well, I, I want to just mention what stranding is. First of all, uh, the Marine Mammal Stranding Network uh, which in North Carolina is um, it's a huge collaboration. I, th I think as of now, my wife, Vicki Thayer, um, is in charge. So she proofs all the data and trains and coordinates. And uh, we respond to all reports of dead or dying or entangled marine mammals 
Uh, and many of them are beach cast carcasses. And then the entanglement, um, Vicky and veterinarians and I help when I can, but they're the talent. Um, they do necropsies on the fresh ones. Uh, not, we do very few rescues and we, we kind of discourage people from thinking that we're a rescue organization, uh, do more euthanizing and the veterinarians make that decision. But again, usually they're dead. Um, uh, maybe half the time the cause of death, the single smoking gun is not determined. But when it is, most of them show signs of having been entangled. So entangled is basically um, encountering our trash, typically fishing line from a reel, net, fishing net, or entanglement in an anchor line or rope from a crab trap and uh, and succumbing to that entanglement. Sometimes drowning, sometimes lethal injury, sometimes they get out of it. I think I recently read a statistic that more than half the large whales, I think it included humpbacks and right whales around that pass through our water bear signs of having survived entanglements. Did that help? Did it just address the question of entanglement? Definitely. Yeah, so... Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, yes, that's... <laughs> so, you know, you're exposed to so much death, it seems, of these magnificent animals. Um, how do you remain hopeful for them and for us and the experience the experiences of humans who get to interact with them. Thanks for asking. Um, people like you and your listeners help me stay hopeful. Having a facility like this where not only can we study and learn about some of the conservation issues, whether it's entanglement or ship strike, ingestion of plastics or things we don't understand, um, being able to share it with the public. That's not really my strength, um, but it helps me stay inspired when um, people generally um, come in here and learn something and first of all, express an interest and then actually learn something. And, you know, hearing someone say, oh, wow, just about gives me goosebumps. And I get to hear that a lot. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, kind of the Bonehenge Whale Center, um, you know, and and how it came to be. Sure, it's a fun story. <laughs> um, so, in, uh, a live sperm whale came ashore at Cape Lookout in two thousand four, and we were doing the necropsy as we usually do. And uh, one of the veterinarians turned to me and said, "Hey, Keith, uh, if you're going to build a display out of this, I would like to X-ray the pectoral one of the pectoral fins for you. May I borrow it?" And I said, "Whoa, whoa, wait, we're not." saving the bones we're not going to do a display we're just doing a necropsy here uh, who are you and he said oh i'm dr paul nader i've put together 11 whale skeletons and we've never gotten it right we've never been able to x-ray the pectoral fins and what are you crazy you're not going to put the skeleton together this is like an endangered species north carolina wildlife terrific necropsy you have all the bones what are you crazy and so we decided to bury it to preserve the opportunity uh uh, long story short, I had 
built a few skeletons, but I didn't think I could really do a big whale, and, and it wasn't really my skill or passion. But all my volunteers and the veterinarians said, no, nah, this is so cool. Yes, you can. And uh, my volunteers built a little building in the woods, not this one, uh, uh, about three miles from here on private property. And I fell asleep in bed last night with a magazine on my chest. And one of my volunteers called me up and said, hey, Keith, I'm about to launch the fundraising website. What do we call it? And I looked at the magazine. It was a National Geographic. And the cover story was Stonehenge. And I just said, oh, what about Bonehenge? And he laughed. And I was joking. And we couldn't come up with anything better. So the name Bonehenge stuck. And that started uh, the, the nonprofit and the Bonehenge.org website and the fundraiser for that sperm whale. We completed the sperm whale, put it up at the Maritime Museum. And the volunteers who worked with me said, Keith, we've got a lot of momentum here. We want to build you something that you can re really be proud of and work out of it and, and just, just put your work on steroids. And uh, and I said, how are we going to do that? You know. And then they came up with lots of ideas, some of them great, some of them not. You know, I was probably the most pessimistic. I just didn't think this wacky idea was going to work. And, um, and and they found a private piece of property. And through a charitable nonprofit, they raised the money. And they asked me to come up with a name. And we came up with the North Carolina Cetacean Center. <laughs> um, and other things that we finally settled on the Bonehenge Whale Center uh, for, for this. So it's a little bit confusing when people refer to Bonehenge, you know, I think anyone now knows that this, this is what they're referring to, but all my volunteers who built the original ones are um, just a little confused sometimes. But anyway, that's uh, that's how this came about. Uh, the whole inspiration was from a sperm whale that we put together successfully and had fun doing it. Public loves it. Scientists love it. And, um, and we had more work to do. And I was working on a trailers, with no ventilation, no running water, had bones stored in people's garages and storage units. And I cannot believe, like, all the stuff in here used to be in that double-ride trailer and you know, along with our office space. Oh and, uh, and so it was just so much fun to move everything from there and the various storage units and garages uh, into this building. And I just had to pinch myself. I still have to pinch myself. Because it's just isn't, isn't just a building, man. You can just feel the love and the acoustics and the light. And and if you look too carefully, you'll be able to tell that volunteers built it. But so what, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's perfect. <laughs> Hope that wasn't too long. <laughs> no, you're doing amazing. <laughs> so, what does a typical week at Bonehenge look like, and what activities can you be soon doing? Oh, okay, I'd say there's no typical week because our plans can get. Um, and often do get thrown off um, from a stranding event. So whenever I arrange to give someone a tour here, I make sure that they can communicate via text and I have their cell phone and they have mine. So if there's a stranding, I can say, hey, can't do your visit. We're not doing a tour then. Um, all right, so I'm just gonna do the main things that we do in here and, and that's our scheduling. It's not much of a schedule. You know, when Rory shows up, she's interested in this and she's talented at this and so that'll influence what we do that day um we manage the north carolina monofilament recovery and recycling program and it's in response to the um conservation issue 
dare I use the word horrors of, of what we've seen of in protected marine wildlife entangled in um, our trash, typically monofilament fishing line. Um, and, and so volunteers go around and collect the fishing line out of the receptacles we or they have put up. Um, and we just manage that and, and, and uh, quantify the fishing line, clean it up and send it off for various um, types of reuse and recycling. Responding to strandings, uh, not very predictable. Doing the necropsies, that happens when we have strandings. Uh, again, not very predictable. If we have um, slower times when we're not responding to weather or wildlife and we do work inside this building, uh, it could be doing things in our graveyard 100 yards away where we do the initial uh, skeletal preparation. Basically, if we finish necropsy and we're left with um, bloody bones from a fresh animal in a very organized way, I'll bag them in color-coded bags, dig a grave with volunteers, and we'll bury the skeletal remains for two years. Then with a class or volunteers, we will exhume those bones two years later. So, you know, some seasons we're putting specimens in the grave, some seasons we're pulling them out. And they go through various soaks, detergent and ammonia soak, hydrogen peroxide soak, and then after they're really dried, we paint them with Jade 403 bookbinder glue that librarians swear by, and it helps seal the bones, gives a little bit of strength, prevents them from becoming chalky over time, and it seems to prevent them from collecting dust when they're on display. And then we start the bone repairs. And sometimes that's pretty darn significant and not always predictable. As an example, this um, goose-beaked whale that's gonna go on display at Duke Marine Lab, which we've been fascinated with the whole project. We're proud of the skeleton. Every rib was broken at least once. Most ribs were broken twice. One rib was broken three times. What does that tell us about the life or death of this animal? I don't know, but here's an important fact. None of those breaks showed any sign of healing. And the bones are really porous and light. And so I just, um, uh, I'm thinking that they broke while she was alive, thrashing in the surf. Uh, other things is uh, putting up and moving displays within the building. I'm, I'm trying to uh, make this building uh, more visitor friendly. And uh, so we're always trying to think of putting interactive things upstairs and not having people downstairs and moving some of the skeletons around so people get up close to it, but not so close that they can bump their heads on it. So we do a lot of that. And uh, uh, you know, I'll bet Rory could answer that question too. Like, well, now, do you notice anything we do typical in here? Is there something not that- Not really. I mean, every, I feel like the times that I've come in here in between classes, we've just done all sorts of different things. It's never been like the same thing when I've come in. Yeah, it's, it's fun uh, yeah. for that reason. Uh, one big part of our work that I totally forgot about it, is, is the cetacean photo ID. So we go out predictably um, two to four times a month and take pictures of bottlenose dolphins. We also photograph humpback whales, or right whales, and anything else we might see. Um, 
And so that, you know, we kind of wait for a weather, weather window. And when, if we have some deserving volunteers around, we, you know, <laughs> we get them on board. And, um, and a lot of uh, photo analysis and data entry related to the photo ID. Um, and the photo ID has taught us just a lot about our local dolphins, seasonality, birth rates, association patterns, and things like that. Um, you know, but each hour of field work, uh, you know, leads to four to six hours of photo processing, data entry, and, and um, you know, paper writing and things like that. Yeah, the processes of obtaining the stranded animal and preserving it for, for display sounds really strenuous. So thanks for sharing that with us. And another cool, well, if I had to mention something that I'm just like so proud of, of North Carolina, not me, um, is the collaboration involved. And I've, I've worked in Florida and Alabama and Texas and Alaska, other places. I've just never been in an area where people want to give so much so accurately, so quickly. There are exceptions, and the exceptions are, um, well, I just, there are exceptions. But, um, you know, some people have, you know, the pressure to publish, and, and so they want to share the data, and that's fine with that. But uh, in general, I think I've earned people's trust, which is really nice. I'm not threatening. You know, I'm just, the result is, is just a, better display, you know, can I please use your uh, radiograph data so we can get our flippers right, you know, and some people want, well, I don't want to because I got to publish it before you put it out there. I said, okay, just, just asking, you know, um, but in general, we all realize that one person or even one team cannot do this alone. So again, I'll go back to the goose-beaked whale, um, Maritime Museum, Bonehenge, Duke Marine Lab, Marine Fisheries, Seamast, UNC Wilmington, and more, all have collaborated. No one really knew it was going to end up at Duke, but I hope Duke tells that story of collaboration and doesn't give Bonehenge all the credit and doesn't take all the credit. It's really collaboration is what moves this. And I'm just, I'm just thrilled. I'm not in an environment where I have to do anything but share things as accurately and quickly and completely as possible. I just don't have those pressures, and I'm not being critical of the people who do. I just um, that's that that's consistent with my style. <laughs> yeah, your role is very valuable. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, out of all the projects that you've worked on here, what would you say is your favorite? If you had to pick one, uh, if I had to pick one, it's always the one we're working on now. <laughs> and we're working on the Duke Marine Lab Goosebeaked Whale now. And there's, it's an oh wow, one after another. I mean, learning about the asymmetry, not just in the skull, but in the other parts of the skeleton. Um, learning about how porous the bones are. I mean, this whole display of an 18 foot whale, including all the steel, all the plexiglass, all the hardware is gonna weigh, wait it over and over again. Wait for it, here it comes. 100 pounds any two of us can walk around with this skeleton and when you see the size of it and the size of the bones it's like what and everything i mean and up to learning from many people who i don't even know um the history of cuvier after whom this whale was named and how 
people feel about that name and that person and that issue was an oh wow to me. I mean, it just it, it just keeps pouring on. Each one of these are so fascinating. So I'm, I mean, I'm going to say the Cuvier's Big Twelve um, is my favorite one right now. You know, but the original Sperm Whale that kind of kicked this off. You know, just the possibility that volunteers can do so much so well. Um, that was all because of that first sperm whale. So I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. And each one's different. So different. Um, so we learned something about anatomy and behavior and just different challenges. We're always figuring out more efficient ways, more stronger ways, more attractive ways, more durable ways for, for these exhibits to um, last 100 years. Does someone want to talk about the history of the Goosebeak Bell to our listeners? I feel like it's a interesting story. I don't know if Catherine that would be. A... Yeah, I'd be willing to share. Um, this all started with two of my courses this semester, um, a course in critical marine studies with Heather Vermulian and Andy Reed, who's the director of the Marine Lab and marine mammalologist um, teaching a marine biology or marine biology of marine mammals course this semester and um, at the intersection of these classes um, some other students and I learned about um, the goose-beaked whale otherwise known as Cuvier's um, beaked whale and after a bit of research um, we learned that Georges Cuvier who was um, a French scientist and I believe referred to as the founder of paleontology um, was also one of the, I guess, creators of the ideas of scientific racism. Um, and we found that he is actually an abhorrent person. Um, and so this was a bit of a jarring discovery and it kind of tied right in with um, what we were learning about in marine mammals class. and. Um, Keith offers lots of really cool t-shirts at um, his Bonehenge Whale Center and um, when a few other students and I were offered a chance to wear one of his shirts um, we noticed Cuvier's name on the shirt and we started a discussion with Keith and Andy and they were both so gracious to um, to take the time to learn about this issue and Keith graciously decided to change the shirt um, to reflect the goose-beaked whale name um, which we hope will remove some of the power from Cuvier's name. Um, so feel free to do your own research but we're really thankful to Andy and Keith for taking time to learn about this because we think that addressing um, racism especially in the scientific world is important um, I think it's important to make a more inclusive space for all kinds of people in science. Yeah, I think it's a really good lesson for everybody yeah. and just understanding like the meaning behind names of species. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, um, what are Bonehenge's future goals and what's next? Okay, future goals. This is kind of my dream. It won't happen in my career, but I really think Beaufort deserves a full-on world-class whale museum. We've got whaling history. We've got amazing world-class research. We've got crazy diversity of cetaceans. Uh, and Bonehenge could be the support center. 
to gather the photos, gather the data, build the um, displays for this whale museum that could go, you know, on either state property or private property. I'm not thinking that far ahead. I mean, that was sort of my dream initially. And uh, it became overwhelming to me. And uh, that would serve the public. That would serve the wildlife. I would love to see that happen. I don't know if it would be through a community barn raising like this or, or, you know, a corporation or a wealthy donor to kick this off. And I sort of envisioned the old elementary school at um, very large piece of property, some nice newer buildings on that property. But my plate is full with Bonehenge, you know, so I, I can provide the ideas, you know, at this point, um, I, I better I better cool off and just make sure Bonehenge um, can pay the monthly bills, basically. <laughs> I'm not gonna launch into something new. And the next project, <clears throat> Two really exciting ones, but if we get a paid gig, a venue that is willing to fund a project, what's fund a project? Um, for Jeanette's Pier, we've done several, and, and when I crunch the numbers of labor and materials and services like a welder, um, I'm just gonna summarize um, just very roughly, a 10-foot dolphin um, takes about $10,000 in services, materials, and labor. Uh, an 18-foot goose-beaked whale takes about $18,000. The sperm whale, the big one that's in the Maritime Museum, that was the first big one we did, that was a $50,000 project. And so um, when we get a paid gig and I can hire people uh, and there's a bit of a deadline, everything else gets put on the side. So I've got NC State and the Graveyard of the Atlantic Museum and a few others that have expressed interest, and I've written them proposals. We could do this for this, and I haven't heard back yet. So in the absence of a paid gig, um, we're working on two interesting projects here. One is a uh, uh, the skeleton of a 37-foot, three-year-old female humpback whale who was hit by a ship and killed, and that's an important story conservation message and we have the whole skeleton so we would use that to introduce um you know that conservation issue of ship strikes the other neat project uh which i really didn't see this coming but my volunteers are just so talented and crazy um they think we can do it is a pregnant bottlenose dolphin came ashore and a uh, team did a terrific necropsy of the mom and the fetus and we have all the bones and uh two of my volunteers said keith we got this. We could do that fetal skeleton. Not only that, let's put it inside the mom skeleton. And not only that, let's make it a traveling display so it can be disassembled and fit in a box and and travel. That's a that's a fun idea, you know. And and it would just be fun to share that story. And quite frankly, a lot of people aren't really sure whether those bottlenose dolphins are fish or what or or not or mammals. And so this would really. Um, you know, highlight the fact that, uh, you know, they get pregnant and give live birth and, and, and there's a lot of parental care <laughs> in bottomless often. So those are the two projects um, that we're working on simultaneously. If a paid gig comes around, then we'll have to put them aside because uh, we need the money to pay the bills, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as Bonehenge is thinking about expanding, um, what advice would you have for someone who wants to get involved with marine mammal research, education and outreach or you know, how can people learn more about Bonehenge? Bonehenge is expanding. 
<laughs> Maybe in the future. Oh, God. I'm sorry. <laughs> you got me nervous there. <laughs> she knows what I don't know. Um, basically, what advice would I have for someone? Yeah. Want, um, volunteering. Doing what Rory's doing. You know, just, I mean, show up when you say, get in touch months in advance. I'm very impressed with you. I mean, really, it's a, not many people do that. You know, I mean, but you listen, I'm in Durham. I'll be down there in a few months. I'll get in touch with you again. I forget if you showed me your resume or whatever. But, uh, and then, you know, if you don't show up when you said, at least you communicate, you know. And and, and so I'd say, you know, find something and, and, and um, follow Expect to volunteer if, if you can afford it and figuring out how to afford it is a challenge. And it was for me. And I'll, I'll just, you know, the bartending thing is just something I got into, you know, I hope that helped, but, you know, finding somebody that you admire or some place you want to work or live or a species that you feel strongly about some way because of conservation issues or because you think it's beautiful uh, and, and just lean forward. Uh, don't be scared. Be kind. Welcome advice. Take criticism well. I hope that helps. It does. <laughs> Get along with people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rory, you know, you're volunteering here at Bonehenge right now. What kind of drew you towards volunteering here and, and what are you doing as a volunteer? Um, so initially I took a class last semester. I think it was Coastal Restoration Ecology. And we came here and Keith gave us a tour and I was like, oh, I really want to volunteer here. This would be really cool. And then I think I reached out to like, I don't know, like a month later or something. Um, and then I was coming down to the marine lab and I just, I don't know, like talked out with you a little bit, um, emailed back and forth. And then, um, yeah, one day I was like, hey, like, is this still a possibility? Can I volunteer? Um, and Keith was very open to it and I'm so grateful to be here. Um, I really, even though it's just in between classes when I can, um, I've learned so much already and I'm, I don't know. I'm just really shocked by like everything in this um, center and all the volunteers are so nice. Um, so yeah, and I guess like the first day when I got here, um, Keith was like, oh yeah, we're gonna go out on a boat today um, and look at dolphins. And I thought that was like amazing. Um, so yeah, I'm really grateful to be here. So thanks so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Keith? Any last inspiring message <laughs> you'd like to impart? No, we've covered it. I, I think I am. Um, I fit in the things that mean the most to me through your good questions and, and the freedom to ramble. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and if people want to learn more about Bonehenge, they can go to bonehenge.org. Yeah, and I get all the texts and emails and um, phone calls from that website. Uh, and uh, if you wanted a tour, I, I don't think I've turned anyone down. It's just you have to um, plan ahead. So I, do, as a rule, don't allow walk-ins. Um, but, you know, some people just come alone. Uh, some people say, I got family coming in town. I came once, but I really want to bring my family because, you know, I mean, that's, that's great. Uh, most of the marine labs around here bring classes. 
So yeah, well, you have to just plan a visit and that seems to be working pretty well. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was awesome to experience Bonehenge firsthand. I hope everyone else can too. Um, thanks to all of our listeners. Where there's a will, well, there's a wave. wave. Make sure to follow us on Instagram or go to thecoastalsociety.org to hear the latest on our Duke TCS chapter. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>